I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible and get their attention, they'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 5. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. 1 Thessalonians 5. One of the obstacles I have to overcome when I try to help people with their struggles is the assumption that many of them make that I simply cannot relate. After all, they reason, you're a pastor and your family's actively involved in the work of the Lord. So you and they don't have any problems really to speak of. So how can you possibly understand the personal problem I'm having? Or the tensions that exist in our family or the pressure that I'm feeling as I deal with a wayward child or a sibling and the list goes on. I've gotten that many times over the years. But it's always interesting to see folks' reaction when I tell them my family story. And that there has been substance abuse with all of my siblings that has affected my family and me directly. That in our own family, Kim and I dealt with the pain of miscarriage four times. That we've dealt with health issues and other struggles as a family. And I could go on, but the point is this. It doesn't matter who you are. If you live long enough in a fallen world, you will experience hardship. So you've heard me say often, That you are either in a trial, or you've recently emerged from a trial, or you're headed into a trial. Because that's the way of this world, and none of us makes it out alive. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetime. And none of us makes it out unscathed along the way. Everyone, everyone has a story. And all of them contain times of struggle. And just as there is no such thing as a Christian who's free from difficulty, so also there is no such thing as a church of people without adversity in their lives. And even a model church, like the one that we've been looking at in the book of 1 Thessalonians, had to be reminded and instructed on how to deal with trials and how to respond to God's instruction in his word, the Bible. So this morning, we're going to see what God says about how to deal with difficulty and how to respond to the instructions that he's given us. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty over our lives, over all the circumstances and situations of our lives, demonstrated by the fact that we're here this morning By your divine appointment, you have allowed it. And you have, you are the one who has instilled in us the desire to be here, and you are the one who has given us the ability to be here. And so now, Lord, help us to see it that way. To see it as this sacred moment in which we have the opportunity to clear away the thoughts and the cares of the world, to focus our attention upon your, what your word tells us about how to deal with those cares. It reminds us that you're in control of them all. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Every Sunday we have an outline inserted in your program for you to follow along in the message. So if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take it out. And I say there, as we experience challenges in our lives, the Bible tells us many times to, first of all, delight in the work of God. Delight in the work of God. Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always. Rejoice always. We can be commanded to be joyful, which is what that is. A command to be joyful. We can be commanded to do that because of what we know about God's work in our lives, including the difficulties that he allows. And here are three things in your outline that we know about that. The first is this, that it is good. We can delight in the work of God because we know that it is good. James in James chapter 1 began his letter this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know. So you know something. The reason that you can be joyful in the midst of these trials is because of what you know. And what you know is that the testing of your faith does something good. It produces perseverance. So we can delight in the work of God because of what we know. We know that it is good. And James reminds us that it is good because God is doing something in it. He's producing something good in even the difficulty. That passage teaches us that there are circumstances in our lives that are unwanted, they're unavoidable, they're unexpected, and they're unlimited. Let me go through those quickly. They're unwanted. That's why they're called trials. They're difficult circumstances in life. Nobody wants trials. Nobody needs to pray for trials. Nobody needs to seek trials. Trials will seek you. But they're unwanted. Further, they're unavoidable. Because James says, whenever. Notice, not if, but when. So it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. That all of us living in a fallen world are going to face difficulties of various kinds. Thirdly, they're unexpected because James says, whenever, and then he says, you face. That's uh, variously translated, whenever you, sometimes it says, fall into. And the word that's translated, when you face or when you fall into, is the same word used in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, where he told the story of a traveler who was just traveling along, and then the Bible says he fell among thieves. So the idea here is that you're just going along through life, and then something happens. You get a diagnosis, or you get a pink slip, or some relationship develops friction. You fall into it. And then fourthly, these are unlimited. James says they are of various, of many kinds. That is, they come in all shapes and sizes. They come in the form of ill health, difficult finances, difficult relationships. But in all of that, our God is at work. So Romans 8.28 tells us, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the all things there includes the trials, the difficulties, the things we don't want but will inevitably come. 
We know it includes that, one, because the word all encompasses everything, but also in that very context, just a few verses later, it says this, we face trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, even death. And the response commanded by James, considerate joy, is given by Paul in our passage. Be joyful, rejoice always. And the same Paul who wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says the same thing elsewhere in other of his letters. Famously in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And when Paul wrote that, I remind you, it's been within the last couple of years we did a series through Philippians, so you may remember. But he writes in the last chapter of his letter to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But when he writes that, many would think, well, what do you know about it, Paul? What do you know about rejoicing in the midst of difficulty? Well, here's what he knows about it. When he writes that, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's under arrest for doing nothing wrong other than obeying God and preaching the gospel. And throughout Paul's letters, he tells us about many of the hardships that he faced because of the ministry that God had given him and his faithfulness to it. And he says in that very chapter of Philippians chapter 4 this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And the Paul who wrote that knew about adverse circumstances. Much more than I ever will. Much more than any of you ever will. So how can we how can we do this? It's because of what we know about God. We know that God is doing something good in the midst of these circumstances. We know that God is not doing something to us, but rather for us. So the Christian then can always say it's all good. Even when it's really bad. And that's why I've defined joy for you, a working definition of joy, taking what the Bible says about this apparently very important issue that James speaks of, that Paul speaks of multiple times, 16 times in just the four chapters of the short book of Philippians. So what is joy? Joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life, And in the lives of others. Joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. He's at work in my life, in your life, if you belong to him. And in the lives of his other children as well. So Christians delight in the work of God. Not because that work is always pleasant. But because we know that it's always intended and moving toward and will accomplish good. We know it's always for good, and we know, I say in your outline, that it is sovereign. This work of God is good, and it is sovereign. Verse 17 says, pray continually. As God works in our lives, allowing the good, the bad, and the ugly, we are to regularly be in prayer, asking for wisdom, as James says. In fact, he goes on just two verses after what we showed on the screen in verses 2 and 3 of James chapter 1 in verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In the midst of these difficulties, ask God for wisdom 
so that you'll know how to apply God's truth in the midst of the circumstances. You'll know how to apply what you know to the situation at hand. So we're to regularly be in prayer, asking for wisdom, as James says, or bringing our request to God, or as we'll see, thanking God for what it is he's doing in our lives. It's been pointed out by many commentators that verse 17 that says pray continually does not mean to be kneeled down regularly or to have your or not to have be kneeled down always, I should say, or have your head bowed and eyes closed in a particular posture of prayer all the time, but rather to be in an attitude of prayer. That's regularly breathing requests for God's help or praising and thanking him. I can tell you in my own life, I find myself doing that all the time. There are times you don't know it, but when I'm talking to you and you're asking me for some advice, for some counsel, and I'm breathing prayer to God, Lord, help me to help this brother or sister. I'm not up to this task. Help me to do this. I'm asking God all the time. I'm thanking God attitude of prayer that's doing that kind of thing continually. But the underlying assumption in all praying, whether it's formal or informal, the underlying assumption, friends, is that God is in control. I mean, why pray to God if he's not? Bingham Hunter in his book, The God Who Hears, answers the oft-repeated question, why do I pray to a God who's already in control of everything? He answers it by asking, why would you want to pray to a God who isn't? We pray to God, we go to God with regard to our circumstances, with regard to his use of those circumstances in our lives, because we know he can. And we know he can because he's sovereign, he's in control. And so we assume God is sovereign, in control when we pray, otherwise there would be no reason. And God wants us to make that acknowledgement of his control and our dependence upon him regularly. But because every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. You see, when we mess up prayer, it's because we first messed up our view of God. We approach God as if he is just someone to whom I throw out my request for things to be the way I want them to be. Then we've got a particular conception of God. He's sort of the divine waiter who's waiting for me to tell him what to do. And because of all that, we often pray in ways that assume that we need to inform God. You do that? When you pray and then you go down this list as if, God, you know, I'm sure you don't know this, but here's what's happening. Jesus actually said when he gave the model prayer, the disciples prayer in Matthew chapter 6, just before starting that model prayer in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, he does... Before he tells us how to pray, he says, here's how not to pray. And one of the things he says is that your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. So God is never ignorant. So we need to think about who this God is. This is the God who's in control. And we go to him because of his sovereign control. We need to then regularly tell him that we understand that complete dependence upon him. We need to be like Jehoshaphat of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, when he stood in the temple and before the people of God as enemies of Israel were amassing around Jerusalem and around Judah. And he prayed, we have no power 
to face this vast enemy that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In the midst of these circumstances that you, God, have sovereignly allowed for your good purposes, we are told to rejoice because we know you are doing something good. And in the midst of that, we pray and we are just humble and dependent and honest. And we say, Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. We can come to him with our requests about these adverse circumstances in life. And we can say, Lord, we ask you to remove this or to change this. It's all legitimate for us to do. But always with the biblical thought in mind that it's to be changed if it's according to his will. Because he knows best and he knows how to Arrange the circumstances for what is best. And that's why the Bible says things like this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, notice, according to his will, then we have what we asked of him. But it's according to his will. And then the thing is, we go, but I don't know what his will is in a particular situation. Does he want this to remain? Does he not want it to remain? How do I know that I'm praying according to God's will? And here's this promise we have in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But here's the great news. God the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. Translates your weak, my weak, uninformed prayer into the will of God. So Christians delight in the work of God because we know it's always for good. Because we know he's in sovereign control of all that he allows. And thirdly, because it is gracious. This work of God is gracious. Verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now I say it's gracious and you don't see the word grace there. But when it says give thanks in verse 18, the word for thanks or thanksgiving in your New Testament, it's a Greek word that's related to the Greek word charis or grace. It's similar to the first point that it's gracious or the first point was it's good. But the recognition that God's work is good, as in that first point, is expressing our internal view of God's work. It's an abiding sense of delight, joy. But thanks here in verse 18 is expressing now outwardly what's inside. This delight that we have that God is at work is then expressed in thanks. We sometimes speak of returning thanks. Have you ever heard that phrase or used that phrase? Let us return thanks to God. What is that? What does it mean to return thanks? Well, we return thanks for God's grace in our lives. Including the difficulties. And verse 18 says this. It says, give thanks in all things. So this sovereign God, on whom we are dependent, to whom we pray continually, in the midst of the circumstances that he allows, we rejoice always. And in those circumstances, give thanks in the situation. Give thanks in all things. But hear this. The same Paul who wrote these words wrote similarly 
In Ephesians chapter 5, give thanks to God the Father, but notice this, for everything. Do you see that there's a difference between giving thanks in and giving thanks for? You see, I'm in the thing, whatever the thing is. But then to be able to say, and God, I know you are not only in control, you are great, but I also know that you are good and gracious and you are doing your good work in my life and therefore I can thank you for the thing, whatever it is. And so do all of this. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And then verse 18 says, for because this is God's will for you. It's God's will and these are his commands. And so, dear friends, it's not optional. It's not optional to rejoice always. It is not optional to pray continually. It is not optional to give thanks in and for everything. It is God's will. But these are not just legalistic commands performed by people forced to do them against their will. You may be sitting there and you hear this and you go, really, I have to do that? Okay, God says so. I've got my little outline. I'll write it down, and I'll remember this afternoon and this week, when, not if, stuff goes wrong, I'll do this stuff. But wow, what a weird setup. Well, no, it's not a legalistic thing that you just do against your will. It says, this is God's will for you. Notice at the end of verse 18, in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, we do this, and we do this willingly. Because we're in Christ Jesus. Because we have a relationship with God through Jesus. And so it's not just these are the rules of my religion. No, this is what happens naturally because of my relationship with Jesus. That's why Paul always adds, he says, when he, when he talks about these difficult circumstances and how we're to act, he always connects it to Christ Jesus or the Lord Back in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice how? Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. So Christians delight in the work of God. And I say secondly in your outline, we desire the word of God. Delight in the work of God, desire the word of God. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Now, I say this is about desiring the word of God because it's about prophecies, which is how God's word was given to his people before being written in Scripture. Prophets gave God's word to God's people, and that word has been inscripturated, written for us in the Bible. And the Bible speaks of the Bible, speaks of Scripture in terms of prophecy. It's God's word, his revelation through people to us that's now been committed to writing. Second Peter says this prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, note the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in giving us his word. This has always been what the Holy Spirit does, imparts God's revelation to men who in turn spoke it, prophesied it, and wrote it down. 
At the time Jesus walked the earth, they had just the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. But on the night before Jesus died, he made special promises to his especially chosen apostles. John chapters 13 through 17, all five of those chapters are all one night before the crucifixion. And Jesus said things like this to the apostles, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And he will remind you of everything I have said to you. He will guide you into all truth. Now, I don't have time to mess with it. Just take my word for it. We can talk about it later. You can email me. But this is a promise to the apostles that he's going to guide you into all truth and he's going to bring everything to your remembrance. It's not a promise for me. It's not a promise for you. How do I know this? I forget stuff. But they're going to have perfect recall so that they can write it down. And the Holy Spirit is going to do that for them. And then after John goes on now, this is the night before he died. John goes on. Jesus is crucified. He's raised. John chapter 20 now. Jesus has been raised. And then the Bible tells us this. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. These apostles that he gave this promise to, the Holy Spirit is going to do this. And then after Jesus has risen, he breathes on them and says, receive now the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed. So you see this connection between the Holy Spirit and the production of scripture of the Bible. But in John 20, where Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, many have had difficulty correlating that event to Pentecost. Many of you know what Pentecost is in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit came upon them some days after these events that we just read about in the life of Jesus. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. How do you put those together? The best way to think of it is this. In John 20, the apostles received the ability to produce the scriptures, receive the Holy Spirit so that now he's going to do this work that I told you about the night before I died. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to bring to your remembrance. Receive now the Holy Spirit so that you can produce the scriptures. And then at Pentecost, the church collectively received the ability to proclaim the scriptures. So the context of verses 19 through 22 is about the word of God mediated to us by the spirit of God. When verse 20 commands that we do not treat prophecies with contempt, it's saying do not look down on what God has provided and revealed for us in his word. It's literally stop treating these with contempt, stop looking down on prophecies, which suggests that the Thessalonians were already starting to do this. Now, it may be well be that the Thessalonians were wary of prophecy because some had misused it, especially as it related to the coming of the Lord. You remember at the end of chapter four and the first 11 verses of chapter five, it was about the rapture and about the day of the Lord and Paul having to correct and calm their minds about that. And then in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he still had to write about it. It says this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by a prophecy, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't be alarmed by some prophecy that somebody gives falsely, not in line with what we have taught you. So as a result of people doing that, Thessalonians, don't look down upon prophecies. Don't say, you know, I'm done with that. 
It's just too hard. So don't treat God's word with suspicion or with reluctance simply because some have misused it. And Christians' desire for the word of God is demonstrated by three things. Now, we're going to look at those three things. But it's 1030. So I feel the need to say, so that you stay with me, um, don't make the mistake of judging the length of the sermon by when it gets done. Because when we get done is partly determined by when I get up. And I got up later today. That's why we're only partway through and it's 1030. See, because what will happen, I know, is we get done at 1040 or 1045 and then one of you will say, wow, you really went long today. Thank you for that. (laughs) No, believe me, I get this. So don't do that. The truth is I'm going to go the same time within minutes that I always go. But we're going to finish, okay? And then we'll start the second hour a bit later. So we'll have plenty of time for the coffee and bagels. Everybody good? All right. So Christians' desire for the Word of God is demonstrated by, I say, these three things. One, it requires obedience. Obedience. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. This is about failure to obey the voice of God, the spirit given in the word that he gave to his prophets. John Piper offers a few thoughts about what it means practically to quench the spirit. John Piper has a a lot of good things to say. So I recommend what he says to you mostly. Ninety five percent. The other five percent where he gets wigged out is usually about the spirit. So here's a guy in John Piper who's not a stodgy guy, an anti-move of the spirit kind of guy, but he does have these good thoughts about the quenching of the spirit. And if you're interested in how he wigs out about the spirit, I'll be happy to tell you about that sometime. But he says, first of all, let's get one thing really clear, namely that being able to quench the spirit of God does not mean that we are sovereign and he's not does not mean that we have final or decisive control over the omnipotent spirit of God. It means that God, for wise and holy and good reasons, often allows us to resist the Holy Spirit, allows us, permits us, or as the old word says, suffers us to resist the Holy Spirit. It's plain that God can overrule our resistance and our quenching and bring us to repentance whenever he wants. Paul said to Timothy this, God grants repentance. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. God grants it. God can do it anytime he wants. Repentance from resisting the spirit of God is a gift of God. So let's keep out of our minds any thought here that our ability to quench the spirit means we have decisive control over the spirit in our lives. We don't. He's sovereign and he lets us for his purposes. Sometimes if we so choose quench. So what does it mean? What are we to do? What are we doing when we quench the spirit? Well, here are three examples of failure to obey the spirit's teaching regarding his work in our lives. We quench the Holy Spirit when we refuse to use the gifts that the spirit has given us. The Bible teaches us that God, the spirit, gifts his people. But if we refuse to do that, we that's one form of quenching, one form of failing to obey God, the Holy Spirit, by not using what he has given for the purpose for which he gave it. Paul wrote to Timothy, do not neglect your gift, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. 
So in Paul's mind, neglecting the gift was virtually the opposite of fanning it into flame. He could have said, Timothy, don't quench the spirit, but rather stir up these gifts into a flame. So if you have a gift from God, you're quenching the spirit if you don't use it for the purpose for which God has given it. Further, quenching the spirit means refusing to sing God's truth with God's joy. To sing God's truth with God's joy. Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So the vibrant fullness of the Spirit overflows in appropriate expressions that the Bible commands. Like singing and making melody from the heart to the Lord. There's a ton that could be said about this. And there are lots of people who have their own idea about what true expressions of the Spirit look like when you're in worship. But this I can say on the authority of the Word of God. That a God-commanded and God-desired expression of joy in Him when we are among God's people is that we sing out in joy to the Lord. I'm up front, I can't see who's singing and who's not. But I say to you, dear friends, and, and it, you know, I hear when we do a cappella, and I can hear it, and it sounds good to me. But I don't know if 100% of us are singing. And I don't know if 100% of us are singing with 100% of all we have. And failure for all of us to sing with all we have is to disobey God Almighty. He says, sing. You say, I sing lousy. He still says, sing. My dear mother, who is now with the Lord, one of the greatest memories I have of my childhood is being next to her in church week after week as she sung from her heart to the top of her lungs off key all the time. <laughs> and how precious that was. She didn't care. And some of you should develop some self-deprecating humor. So if you're sitting around somebody, maybe share share the love with other people. Sit in different places, you know. <laughs> and just say, hey, by the way, I'm a lousy singer, but I'm going to belt it out. Just giving you fair warning. And just sort of laugh about it. Because you've got the joy of the Lord and you express that joy of the Lord in the way that he commands that we express that joy of the Lord. Finally. Quenching the Spirit means resisting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is, those gracious behaviors that come to us from the Spirit. You see this in passages like Ephesians 4.30, where it talks about grieving the Spirit. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. So in front of the command not to grieve the Spirit, behind the command not to grieve the Spirit, we have these exhortations to be kind and gracious to other people. In other words, live out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So quenching the Holy Spirit is first that when we quench Him, understand we're not sovereign. He is sovereign. And then it means these three things. It means neglecting the gift that we have, shutting down our expression of joy to Him in song, and resisting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It means disobeying God to quench the Spirit. Desiring God's Word is seen in obedience to it, and I say in your outline, it requires 
Openness. Openness. Verse 20, do not treat prophecies with contempt. So do not get to the point where you say, you know, I don't like these doctrinal debates. Can't we all just love each other? And so I'm really, frankly, I'm getting sick of being taught the Bible, you know, because it's just, you know, all about this is the way it's supposed to be. And how many false teachers are there mentioned in the Bible? Yikes. And the Bible talks about false teaching and false teachers all the time. And, you know, I just don't like that kind of tension. And so I just don't, I don't want to do it. Let's just all love each other. I mean, why would someone look on Scripture with suspicion? Why would someone look on Scripture warily? Well, it may be because they've heard some abuse, and so they conclude that we can't know its meaning because there are so many people teaching something different. So let's just all get along and forget about this teaching. Friends, that's despising the Word of God to do that. And God did not call us all to get along. God called us all to get along with Him, to get along with those who follow him and obey his truth. And he's given us through his spirit, in his word, his truth. So do not despise that. Do not go the easier route that just says, let's all get along despite serious doctrinal differences. Including adding things to the terms of the gospel, like baptism or anything else. We desire God's word, we'll be obedient to it, open to it. Third, it'll result in holiness. It'll result in holiness. Verse 21, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. So for us, this is having God's prophecy through his spirit in his word. And it's saying, test everything and hold on to what is good. So application of that would be to us, when we hear the word of God taught, we should test it by the word of God. And we hold on to what is good and we reject what is what is not. One of the tests for what books of the Bible were to be included in the Bible was a test called Catholicity. It has nothing to do with Catholicism. Catholicity, Catholic, just means universal. And the idea was that a book was a candidate to be included in the New Testament if it was something that was consistent with what God had already given and therefore was universally received by the church. Comparing Scripture to Scripture. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, the Berean Christians were commended for searching the Scriptures to see if these things were so. And these things that they were searching were the teachings of Paul. And it says they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was telling them was actually true. So test, test with other scriptures. Is it consistent with what the Bible says? And then you hold on to what's true, what hold on to what's good. And verse 22, you reject every kind of evil, including what's false. So a desire to discern and stay away from every kind of evil results from being committed to desiring the word of God. If you're going to reject and stay away from every kind of evil, hear this, friends. If you're going to know what God likes, if you're going to know what God likes, then you need to get to know what God is like. You want to know what God likes? 
then get to know what God is like. Guess how you do that? In the Bible. He reveals himself and what he is like and therefore what he likes in the Bible. Now, verse 22 says, reject every kind of evil. The King James in that verse says, avoid the appearance of evil. I just got to make this comment. We're almost done. But for some of you, that's your life verse. Avoid the appearance of evil, and it's your life verse to be used against other people who you're convinced are engaged in stuff that appears to be evil. So the King James unfortunate translation, avoid the appearance of evil, has meant to you, if it appears to me to be evil, then you can't do it. But that's not actually what it says. It says avoid every kind of evil. Now there are lots of reasons in Scripture, to avoid things that appear to be evil. But 1 Thessalonians 5.22 is not teaching that, so stop quoting that to other people. New Testament scholar Dan Wallace has an article on that very issue. Here's the title of the article. The Sin Sniffers Catch-All Verse. People who are sin sniffers, that is, sniffing out sin in the lives of other people, use this as their catch-all verse. So here's your take-home truth. Christians gladly submit to God's work and his word. Let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. Our Father, thank you again for gathering us. And thank you, Lord, for your sovereign, good, gracious work in our lives. And thank you for your word that tells us how we are to respond and how we are to behave and what it is you are accomplishing in that work in our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to be people then who indeed delight in your work and desire your word always. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.